0: This podcast is brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to GOSH Pods. My name is Ryan Thomas and I'm the Digital Learning Fellow at Great Ormond Street Hospital. This week we're sharing an episode from our brand new podcast that we thought you might be interested in. The GOSH Bioethics Podcast is presented by Dr Joe Briley, a consultant in paediatric and neonatal intensive care medicine and director of paediatric bioethics at Great Ormond Street Hospital. This new podcast will bring you discussion about important moral issues in the treatment of children, reflecting hot topics, complex themes, and featuring a range of exciting and informative guests. If you want to hear more, then please subscribe to the Gosh Bioethics podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or via Gosh Den. You'll find links in the episode description. Gosh Pods will be back in a couple of weeks with brand new episodes, but until then, we hope you enjoy this bonus episode.
1: Hello, my name is Joe Briley. I'm a paediatric intensive care doctor, and also director of paediatric bioethics at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital in London. I'm introducing our series of Great Ormond Street Bioethics podcasts, which will bring you discussion about important moral issues in the treatment of children. In these podcasts, we'll reflect hot topics, complex themes in paediatrics and child health, and we'll feature a range of exciting and informative guests. I do hope you enjoy the podcasts. I'm delighted to welcome Dave Archer to our latest podcast, and we're going to tackle the challenging area of children's rights after Ukraine. Where are they? Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Joe. So, Dave, it's fair to say you're a major proponent of children's rights. Your book, The Moral and Political Status of Children, is pretty much a paradigm for discussing these issues. So it's perfect you're here to discuss where children's rights are after what we see in a, a very challenging conflict for children in the Ukraine area.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And I think it might be useful just to start with the background context, which is there's been considerable argument in philosophical literature as to whether or not children have rights, and if so, what kinds of rights they have, and how they differ from adults. But I've also, thought it's important to say that even if we can't reach agreement on the question of whether or not morally they're entitled to those rights, there is a convention, the UN Convention, that gives them legal rights. And that convention, all its faults and for all the, the difficulties that some see it. it is an extraordinary document we always say it's the most ratified international convention in history and it sets out a comprehensive list of rights which is a really important starting point for thinking about the status of children in the world today and it's not clear what role that convention can have in the current awful context absolutely
1: i i think it's Pretty important to say that the universal declaration of human rights applies to children too so they actually have additional rights yeah yeah but i i i may be a little bit nihilistic about this but i'm i'm struggling increasingly to see how the word universal can apply when let's let's say isn't it how it is the russian state has invaded another country children are hugely victims of conflict as we've seen in afghanistan in syria Mm. all over the world they're small they're vulnerable they need infrastructure to have some of the rights that we are suggesting they're entitled to a right to education to family life and yet these things are are at best disregarded by those who would wish to impose their will on other states. And I I think that's a real challenge, the universality of rights, perhaps, Dave. I'm interested in your thoughts on that.
2: I I think the point you make is is a good one. And you you talk about the universal declaration of human rights, and that, of course, was part of an extraordinary post-Second World War settlement in in a belief that it Mm. would be possible to construct a world order that would respect the rights of different nation states, but would guarantee peace and would ensure that the rights of individuals across the globe, wherever they lived, would be respected. And I think you can fit the Convention on the Rights of the Child into that context. And note, interestingly, that it, it dates from precisely the point at which everyone thought the Iron Curtain came down in 1989 mm. with, with the collapse of the Berlin War, that in effect, in Europe, you had a new order, one that was peaceful again and in which Russia would be one more state enjoying good collegiate relationships with others. What's happening in Ukraine seems to threaten not just that European order, but the general post-Second World War order. And you're absolutely right. It's extremely dismaying to have a context in which we think that there are rights universally enjoyed, and yet see them systematically violated and ignored without worryingly any, any... any chance of those who are violating the rights being um, brought to book and stood up in court. I mean, there have been some cases in which people have been prosecuted for war crimes, notably those in in the Balkan states, but the prospects in the current context of seeing anybody brought to book for what is happening seems very slim indeed.
1: Yeah, I guess Fukuyama's end of history type stuff is is relevant here, but I, I guess the other the question i i feel slightly guilty about there's a big focus on ukraine obviously yet there is some slightly disquieting comments coming out that well perhaps this is because they are culturally in europe children who are closer to us and we can see this that actually the wars of previous generations that yeah. haven't had the attention that perhaps they ought to have had uh, one thinks of wars in africa genocides there Wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, other countries, where,
2: again, the role of
1: or what happens to children has not been as much of a focus.
2: I think your point is very well made, uh, Joe. And interestingly, I've been helping to draft a, a European statement from various bioethics committees, on the situation mm-hmm. in, in Ukraine and talking particularly as, as as bioethics committees about the damage being done to the health of individuals and particular attention was paid there to to, to children and the disruption of families and it was important for us to insert into the draft a recognition that Ukraine was but one war. In the world and you've got an absolutely mm. appalling situation in Yemen for instance and a continuing mm. problem in Syria and we shouldn't forget that are atrocities being uh, perpetrated against both adults and children in uh, other parts of the world and you're actually right as well that we tend to focus on what is immediate and close to us and that does lead us to forget what's happening slightly far away and with what, what we're not familiar with so Africa is uh, as a good example
1: I guess I probably one of my favourite books is Michael Gross's book, uh, Bioethics and Armed Conflict, about moral dilemmas in medicine and war. And I, I I remember reading that book and thinking, gosh, there's there's really very little about children in there. Yeah. Um, and then with some of, um, again, our experience in the UK, my colleagues in Birmingham particularly, of having some children come from the war of Afghanistan, but the stories mm. of, of combat troops coming back here in the US, that children were by far and away proportionately... Mm. victims of those conflicts Mm. uh, Mm. Whether think of previously knowledge about landmines in Africa Mm. I guess the unique vulnerability of children in war zones has not quite been explored in the bioethics world as much as I I might argue it ought to be
2: No, I think you're absolutely right uh, on that Joe and I think it might be worth saying something about the situation which we haven't had in Ukraine but we have had in Africa of children and young persons being conscripted into armies and having forced to serve as soldiers. The situation of child soldiers is a deeply distressing one and having to deal with the aftermath of conflicts in which children have not only witnessed awful things, but themselves being protagonists. But I I, I suspect for most people looking at the footage that has come out of Ukraine, there is that sense of absolute pain, distress at seeing children ripped away from their parents, crying. The attack on the maternity hospital seems to have been for many a sort of paradigm yeah. atrocity event in Ukraine how How awful can it get when well, yeah. you actually bomb a maternity hospital such that pregnant women are at risk and children? So I think it, it is right to concentrate on how awful this has been for children. And it's interesting because you're, you're a great fan of the Birkenhead principle. And um, it struck me that it, it's sort of been noted, but not, not extensively commented on, that it has been women and children first to uh, to be the refugees, with men being left to, to serve. And we need to recognise how absolutely awful that has been for, for children, in being taken away from one of their parents, forced to travel huge distances in extremely difficult, tense situations, finding themselves in a strange land. And that's before we look at the situation of children who have been receiving healthcare, and I don't know whether you want to say something Joe about how doctors remaining in Ukraine have been having to deal with the situation
1: yeah I mean I've been in contact with colleagues via our European Academy of Pediatrics group who are just heroes the people in Ukraine are are trying to carry on to provide very uh, necessary care to children with existing illness, children with learning difficulties, neurodisability, children with cancer, in the middle of their national infrastructure being under attack. And as you say, I mean, it's really hard to kind of look at the truths and Mm -hmm. denials about stuff, but it it looks like a clear attack on a maternity hospital and children's hospital. And then overnight, a a theatre in a city which had the word child painted outside and it appears that was deliberately attacked. Now, this yeah. sort of indiscriminate attack on what are clearly civilians, people justify it by saying this is a f- terrorist putting signs up about... I mean, that, that's really just yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think you're quite right and that the, the medical teams the nurses the other people over there helping and, mm. I, and I think we have to say I mean we're starting to have some children come to the UK for cancer treatment mm-hmm. but by far and away the majority of the refugees and children with illnesses have gone to states nearby I know my colleagues in Poland they're doing an amazing job and mm. other Baltic countries particularly colleagues in Germany I mean I, I won't go through all the list because many many European countries are really contributing massively in child health professionals are really stepping up to the plate but I, I it's worth mentioning I think there is an optional protocol to the convention the Rights of the child about child soldiers and that doesn't seem to be something we're seeing in this conflict but of course has been in other conflicts which yeah. is appalling I guess I mean I move on to that I mean whilst arguing we shouldn't be too eurocentric in these issues I, I would like to just highlight the European Academy of Pediatrics statement we made on on the current conflict in Ukraine and there's a really good paper that's quoted in that statement which is from a colleague in Croatia where the previous european war really happened in that area in the balkans and she actually does look through how war affects children in a, mm. in a thorough way and that's the reason we highlighted that but but again the approach taken in the paper was about the rights of the child and human rights and i guess mm-hmm. One thing I'm always fascinated about, if we, we move a little away from the theatre of war into the the extent to which human rights, children's rights are part of daily society, it, it's hugely different throughout mm. even similar countries in Western Europe. The rights of the child in, in the hospitals with my colleagues in Poland is, is on the door of the hospital when you go in. I don't think I've seen that in, our, in the mm. UK. Now, I wonder about your thoughts about the extent to which children's rights are Prevalent, if you like, in our societies
2: Oh no, it's a, it, it, it's, a, it's a good challenge Joan, I think you're absolutely right It's it's always been striking to me That, that uh, when I go to European countries To talk about issues around children's Rights in, say, uh, Scandinavia Or in Middle Europe The starting point is the acceptance Of the UN Convention And remember in a number of those countries That convention has been incorporated Into domestic law, Norway is a good example Where uh, mm. I've, I've lectured And therefore they're just totally familiar with with the convention and its rights and not just in hospitals you'll find in in schools. And in kindergartens, mm. you'll find the UN Convention up on the wall, as well as uh, simplified statements of what all the rights means. So it's, it's part of, as it were, the political, social, legal culture of the, those countries. That's not so in the United Kingdom. though. So mm. although we've signed and ratified the Convention, it's very rare to find it mentioned. In fact, at one point, I was trying to look at any legal cases where the UN Convention plays a role. And then few and far between. And many years ago, I talked to someone who had served as a children's rights commissioner. And he pointed out that, mm. um, that we, have a, we have a children's minister in the UK government, mm. but in all the policy statements he'd made, he had never once made reference to the UN Convention. And there's a key document, say Every Child Matters, where it's actually quite hard to find the, the, the convention. Now, I think some of that has to do with the historic distaste in the United Kingdom for rights. I mean, there was long resistance to the Human Rights Act, that is incorporating the European Convention of Human Rights into into domestic law, and I think it's still there um, in certain sections of our political classes who just do not like the language of of rights and do not like the idea that the actions of organisations, agencies and politicians will thereby be subject to courts. I mean, that's, I think, what it comes Mm. down to, because courts are there to interpret and protect rights so I, I think it, it's a real problem because we don't have I mean I think the crux of the problem with the UN convention is straightforwardly we don't have a court of children's rights mm. to which we, to which we can refer cases uh, in the same way that we used to be able to refer violations of adult human rights to a, to a European court. So I think we're a long way off the, the situation you find in, in Europe that, that you note. And it would be rare in any political discussion of uh, what's happening If we get back to Ukraine. We're, we're talking about that situation. It, w- it would be very odd to find a reference to the UN convention in any English commentary. And, and that says something about the importance we attribute to that convention.
1: So I'm going to come to an end, I don't want to get too depressing Dave, I really don't (laughs) but um, I'm going to challenge you a little bit let's see if you can get to a positive an argument could be made that Human rights, the era of human rights, is coming to an end. We have yeah. the UN Convention, the Rights of the Child, that blatantly disregard every aspect. You know, there are countries without going around the world where where you know the UK would look like a paradigm of human rights compared to how people are treated in those societies. And that's individual member states will yeah. have different yeah. rules, regulations. Yet the universality is maybe what I'm I'm challenging here. Yeah. That what what can the United Nations have to say about this when it's member states are are blatantly at different places, shall we say, in respecting the, what you could say, the old-fashioned Second World War settlement yeah, yeah. values of human rights.
2: I was going to start with a brief, uh, as it were, footnote. You mentioned much earlier Francis Fukuyama's end-of-history thesis, yes. which a recent interview with him I read, uh, and he said that he's going tired of the fact that here, in, current, in the current context, we have the most obvious and definitive rebuttal of, of his thesis. Mm-hmm. And he will point out that his thesis was a little bit more nuanced than, than is, that he's being attributed to. What, what he argued was that we'd reached a point with the development of certain social forms and economic forms, chiefly capitalism, the, the prospects were very high for a liberal democracy to be, as it were, the default political form uh, throughout the world. But he allowed that there, there might be deformations, and he allowed for the possibility of the rise of tyrannies and what we now know as, as populist leaders. So let's be fair to Francis in what he actually said. I've been struck by the fact that the, the best prospects for the safe and secure continuation of liberal democratic forms is a robust judiciary and a robust press. And I increasingly look to them as the guardians of liberal democracy rather than our politicians. So uh, I think it's often the courts and journalists who call us to account for violations of rights. And if I have grounds for optimism, it's looking at the extraordinary courage of those presently in Russia who precisely are now starting to find a voice. I think we both know the example of the editor who displayed the note about fake news propaganda and end the war. Now, I, I, I would love to think that that is a kind of glimmer of hope that if there's going to be change in these states that fail to observe liberal democratic norms, it won't come from outside in the form of the United Nations, much as that organization is important, but it will come internally from pressures of people. And if you look at the, the, even the history of Ukraine, mm. from being a state within the Soviet Union to what it is now, uh, a fledgling liberal democratic state, one which changed its president an enormous number of times due to popular will. I think it's internally that you'll see the kind of changes that will bring about a return to universal norms. Now, that's me being the cheery, rosy-cheeked optimist. I, perhaps, I did ask but, you for <laughs> optimism, Dave, to be fair. But I, I'm, I'm seeing in small signs, expressions of dissent and the simple fact is that people do want to enjoy, if you look at all the revolutions or changes that have occurred over the last year in, in, in North Africa and in Eastern Europe, they've been driven by a popular wish to enjoy the rights that are guaranteed in, in liberal democratic states. And I think it's pretty hard to keep the people down for long.
1: On that optimistic note, I'd like to say thank you to Dave Archer and there'll be another episode of the Great Ormond Street Bioethics podcast along soon. Thanks, Dave.
2: Thanks very much, Joe.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts.